Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. About six years ago, my family journeyed back to western Pennsylvania for a family reunion. We were getting together with a lot of the family that we had there. It was a good time. And uh, one afternoon, we drove into western New York to this place called Panama Rocks. Panama Rocks is rocks and trees and trails and caving, a lot like we would experience here in Oregon. Now, one of the... um, attractions, I guess you would call it, at Panama Rocks is a 60-foot vertical crack in this granite face. Uh, Here's a picture of it here uh, with some family there going through. And uh, one more picture. Here's my two kids there. This is called Fat Man's Misery. (laughs) That's what they call it. Now, it begins as about a 24-inch gap And then at the end of this, as you're trying to squeeze your way through, it's about nine or 10 inches. And this is what you do for fun in Western New York. (laughs) So what you do is you start walking. Now my children went first and my youngest daughter was just like, this is great, dad, what's the big deal? But as you start getting in there, you have to turn sideways and then the crack starts to kind of lean back a little bit. So if you can picture your feet are sideways and you're leaning back and the granite is pressed against your back and every time you breathe, you can feel it against your chest and you're going through. Now, I went through with some adults and uh, as we're going through, the person in front of me gets stuck. (laughs) Now, I'm thinking to myself, no big deal. (laughs) Sorry, but we'll just back out of here and we'll keep going. But the person behind me was both overly ambitious and underly spatially aware, and they got stuck. So here I am in fat man's misery, at this point where it's pressing here and it's pressing here, and I'm just stuck, and I cannot move. I got people on both sides, and and I don't usually think of myself as being claustrophobic until I get into tight spaces. And then I find out I'm really claustrophobic. And I'm trying to think, how in the world am I going to get out of this? Can I like Spider-Man crawl somehow over the top of the person there? Or how long do I have to wait until one of these two like sweats it out? I don't know what's going to happen. But I'm stuck. And I'm thinking, I did this to myself. I made this choice. I thought, oh, this would be a great idea. I can do this. And yes, other people added to my misery, but I'm stuck and it's pressing against me and I'm trying to go to my happy place. But no matter how much I think about that, I'm I'm having trouble breathing at this point. And I'm having trouble even breathing telling this story because just this, oh. And what do you do in those moments? Because life gets like that, doesn't it? Sometimes we make choices aided by the people around us and we get into positions where we get stuck. And no matter how much we want that to go away and no matter how much we try and avoid it, it's just always right there in front of us. And so how do we get unstuck? How do we deal with those circumstances? We're continuing on in a series called Stuck. And it's because in our lives, we get stuck. Maybe some people get stuck a little bit and some people seem to always be stuck. But how do we then find our way out of the maze of our stuckness? So we're taking a look at the 12 steps. 
And we're taking a look at how the 12 steps are biblical steps and how we can use them to gain progress, to get progress in our lives. Now, I want to remind us that we are not actually working the 12 steps. This is an overview of the 12 steps. It's a four-week series. We're dipping our toes into a very deep pool. But hopefully at some point along the line, we'll find a connection with some of these and maybe it's where we are in the journey or maybe somewhere along the line, we'll decide that we need to actually lean in and to join a group. But we shouldn't get to the end of this series and be like, whew, glad that's over with. Four weeks of those steps was enough for me. I'm on the path to recovery. It's usually a process that takes a long, long time. So we looked several weeks ago that the steps can kind of be broken up into four different sections Steps one to three, peace with God. Four to seven, peace with ourselves. Eight to 10, peace with others. And then 11 and 12, keeping the peace. And so this morning, we're gonna be on the end of peace with ourselves. We're gonna look at step seven. And the beginning of peace with others, we're gonna look at steps eight and nine because we want to be a people who are humble and honest and confessional. And we wanna be a people that do not avoid self-examination, we actually initiate self-examination. And we wanna be a people, we wanna be a church that when we mess up and then we do things wrong, we're quick to confess and we're quick to make amends. We're quick to make it right. So we're gonna dive into those this morning. And if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Luke chapter 19. We're gonna read a familiar story. If you wanna grab a Bible out of the pew there, it's on page 872. If you wanna pull up the U version on your phone, as long as you promise not to be on social media, feel free to do that as well. Luke 19, starting in verse one. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that there is some social baggage that comes along with being a tax collector. If you're unfamiliar with the New Testament, how do you feel about tax collectors? If that's your job, I apologize. But usually we don't get a warm, fuzzy feeling when we think about our taxes being collected. Tax collectors in the New Testament were their own special category of sinner. Matthew 18 speaks of pagans, it speaks of the ungodly and tax collectors, and it doesn't list them together to differentiate the two, it lists them together because, yep, there's the ungodly, and then below that, there's the tax collector. To a New Testament Jew, they were considered robbers. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't even tithe at the temple because their money was stolen. You see, to be a chief tax collector, what you would do is you would go to some Roman official and you would bid on that position. You would say, here's the deal. I can get you this amount of tax for this region. With the support of your military, I will get you this money. And if you had the best bid, they would say, okay, the job's yours. And this meant a couple things. First, it meant that you got to dictate your own salary, which if you could set your own salary, it'd probably be higher than what you're currently earning. You would be apt to give yourself a raise. And second, it meant you were in a position of power because you had the backing of military. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that one tax collector, not Zacchaeus, but a, a different guy who was the chief of a certain region had 10 prominent citizens beheaded for not paying their taxes. 
And then he went in and confiscated all of their possessions. They had a bad reputation, but they were in a position of power. He was the chief and he was very rich, which meant he was good at his job, which meant he was efficient and organized and aggressive and in a position of power. And he was living lavishly. If you can picture him, he had the big house and the swimming pool and the servants and the convertible chariot that he rode around in. All chariots are convertible, I think. He had a hardtop chariot that he rode around in and it was really cool. And yet, Something was missing, right? And we see that because of his seeking. His self-sufficiency wasn't meeting some deep need that he had in his life. All of his money and power and position and connections weren't meeting this deep need in his life. And so he humbled himself and sought out Jesus. And we know he humbled himself because he climbed a tree. Rich, powerful men do not climb trees. They climb corporate ladders. And so he humbled himself and he climbed a tree because he was seeking out Jesus. There was a deep need that all of his stuff was not meeting and we need to get to that place as well. We need to get to that exact same place when we realize that our money or position or power or program or plan will never meet the deepest needs in our lives. All of those things that we've built around ourselves will never forgive our own sins. They will never bring restoration to the relationships that are broken, will never bring us peace. Only Jesus will. And so step seven says this, we humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings. Step seven is we've come to this place where we say, God, you are able and I am completely unable. And what I've learned that that all of my striving and straining and serving has brought me nothing but exhaustion. And my self-help has been no help at all. And Jesus, you are the one that needs to restore me. You are the only one that can bring restoration, that can remove these things from my life. And that's why it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Jesus is the one that does the work, but we humble ourselves. If you were here last week, Steve was talking about steps four, five, and six And step four was we were making a list of the things in our lives, this this inventory of our lives, of the ways that that we wrestle and our shortcomings. And, And five and six were about this idea of wanting their removal, of coming to this place of saying, I just want these things to be out of my life. And he gave opportunity at the end of the service for you to write down some things and to come up actually and place them in this box as a symbol of saying, Jesus, I I want you to do this in my life. But if you're like me, you might have walked past and picked them up on Monday morning again. We put them in Sunday, we pick them back up Monday because we go, you know what, I made this mess and I'm gonna deal with it. And if your issue is control, you said to yourself, well, I've got three more ways to try to get rid of this thing. Or maybe your issue is perfectionism and you were like, I need one more shot at this. I can do this. I can do this on my own. Because self-sufficiency is our motto, it's our mantra, it's the American way, it's why all of us in this room loaded up our covered wagons and rode out on the Oregon Trail so we could homestead out here. Because we can do this thing ourselves. It's how we've been raised. And oftentimes I think to myself, 
God, I know that you've got the future in your hands. And God, I know that you can handle the world because the world is so big and I can't handle those things. But, but God, you're busy and, and if things are gonna work out really the way I want them to work out, I'm gonna hang on to a couple things. Like relationally, I'm gonna hang on to some of these relationships because if you deal with it, it might not work exactly the way I want it to work out. Or God, financially, I appreciate everything you do for the world, but financially, it's probably not gonna work out unless I have my hands in this. And so we wanna keep grabbing back those things and saying, no, I can do this, I got this. But we need to get to that point where we humbly say, I'm done. My programs and my plans and everything that I've built around myself, it's not the want, like I said, it's the ready. That's where we are at this step, where we humbly say, I cannot get unstuck on my own. I'm in here of my own choosing and I'm stuck and I desperately need your help. Now, humility is not self-deprecation. It's not self-criticism and it's not seeing ourselves as unimportant or inadequate or lacking in value. Humility is seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. And so when we come to him humbly, we see ourselves as people who are dearly loved and yet prone to wander prone to grab things back and try and do them ourselves. But there should be no humiliation in humility. There should be no shame in that humility. When we come to Jesus humbly, he accepts us. Psalm 51, 17 says it beautifully. It says, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Psalm 51 is, is King David coming off some pretty significant sin issues in his life. And he is writing this psalm of confession and he's saying, God, you will not reject my broken and repentant heart. And so we come to God humbly with our shortcomings, asking for their removal. That's what step seven is. And if I can give you a few tips, step seven happens on your knees. This is a prayer that we just need to pray alone and quiet. And oftentimes we pray, God, forgive me of my sins. And we just kind of generalize it, all of the sins. But I would recommend on this step that you become very specific. Maybe if you made a list for step four, that you start walking through that. Jesus, I tend to manipulate people. Forgive me for that. Help me to replace that behavior. Jesus, I tend to isolate myself from community. Forgive me for that. Help me to change that behavior. Become very specific with those things. And we're not just saying, okay, Jesus, forgive these sins because they're keeping me from reaching my goals. Jesus, forgive all of these things. I can't do it on my own, you can. And Jesus says, yes, I will forgive your sins. I will cleanse you. I will bring wholeness to your life. I will allow you to have peace with me and peace with yourself. And I love these seven steps. And I sometimes wish this was a seven step program. That we could just close in prayer right now and just be like, oh, that was great. Peace with God and peace with ourselves. Because as we make the transition, as step seven bridges us to steps eight and nine, I get crazy uncomfortable. Because this starts infringing on my life. Let's continue on in this story. This story of uh, Zacchaeus here. And we'll see that when he sought out Jesus, Jesus made some changes in his life. And, and what were those changes? What was the response? 
When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Now, literally in the Greek, it, it means room and board, guest. It means to lodge. Jesus wasn't just swinging by for brunch. He was going to stay with Zacchaeus for a little bit. They were gonna do life together for a little bit. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. And I love this part too. I love that Jesus invites himself over. Jesus doesn't wait for the invitation. He's like, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. It's gonna be awesome. And it's not that there had been any repentance on Zacchaeus's part. It wasn't like Zacchaeus repented and Jesus is like, okay, now I see you. Now I'm coming into your life. Jesus saw him. Jesus came into his life. And because of that, repentance happened. It was the result of it. It wasn't that Zacchaeus did anything to merit this. It was Jesus' love that caused the change. Because we see in verse eight, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to your home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And that would have been a hugely inflammatory statement at the time. And that brings us to what step eight is. Make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Wow. Wow. This is why it's a better seven-step program. (laughs) Because step eight is where fear and pride are gonna conspire against us. Fear is gonna say, whoa, whoa, that's way too hard. There's no way this is all gonna work out. You just step away from that one. And pride is gonna say, wait, a list of how you have harmed other people? How about a list of how other people have harmed you? And we're gonna wanna launch in on that list first because it's infinitely easier for us to make a list of what other people have done to us than what we've done to them because I tend to maximize the offenses of others in my life and minimize my own offenses. But this list is not a list of how other people have harmed us. This is not a list of people we don't like. It's not a list of people I would like to see changed. And so we need to avoid that temptation to minimize or to rationalize, or even to just avoid those situations altogether, like, ah, that was no big deal, and let's let bygones be bygones. This is the step where we own our own stuff. This is the step where we understand what our part in it was, because the path to our unstuckness is not around the pain, but it's through the pain. The path for us Getting unstuck isn't to kind of circumnavigate all the difficult things in life or to to minimize them or to try and stuff them down into the basement, but it's walking right through the middle of that pain. It's us saying, yeah, I had a part in it. It's Matthew chapter seven, verse three. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? It's not like, ooh, let me get that little thing out. It's like, oh, here I am. This is me. This is my stuff. And so if we're gonna put some steps to this, I would say this. Make a list of people you've harmed. What are the things that you did? What's your part? We have to own our stuff. What was the consequence of that? What, how did that go sideways? And then what you could have done differently. That's a great step. 
What should I have done in that situation? What would have brought healing in that situation? Now, this could be a difficult thing. And you might look at this and just be completely overwhelmed. Or you might not even know where to start. I, I would say ask your spouse. Ask your kids. They're going to give you some suggestions. They're going to get the ball rolling for you, people close to you. I would honestly say you need to sit and ask Holy Spirit to just give insight into this process. And I would look at your broken relationships. Where do you have relationships that are broken and what is your part in that? Let me give you, a, for instance, as you look at this and you go, okay, people you have harmed and what you did to cause harm. You know, I could stand up here and I could say, uh, dear Steve Fowler, I'm sorry for showing a picture with your face on Mount Rushmore <laughs> if that brought you harm. I'm sorry for showing your senior picture <laughs> and putting class of 62 on it when it's nowhere close to when he graduated. I just, I just love that picture. <laughs> Steve, for the past couple weeks, has talked about his own impulsiveness that caused difficulty when he went out and he purchased a Honda when he shouldn't have. I have a picture of his Honda. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what we're supposed to do. A couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, <laughs> Steve had us fill in the blank in this statement. I admit I am powerless over blank and my life has become unmanageable. And, and we're all supposed to speak that out loud. And, and uh, I mumbled it through like most of you in this room. I admit that I am powerless over and my life has become unmanageable. And after I got done with that statement, my wife said, uh, what did you say? <laughs> and I said, I said pride and stubbornness. And she said, you're right. <laughs> and it's true. It's true, my pride and my stubbornness has broken some relationships. My stubbornness and the fact that, that my plans, my programs oftentimes are more important than the people around me. And so I can stick to the plan above all else as I'm running over the people that I'm working with. Or my sarcasm, or as some people call it, scarcasm, has injured people where I would say I was only kidding, or even worse, I would push it back on them and say, can't you take a joke? It has broken relationships. And we need to come to the point where we're making that list, owning our own stuff, seeing what the consequences are and what we could have done differently. And the, and the statement says to become willing to become willing to make amends. And that's important. Before we actually get to the next step, it's important to become willing. Part of that becoming willing is forgiveness. It's forgiveness because we know most conflict has two different people in that that are causing that conflict. And we own our stuff and, and there might be stuff from someone else. And so we forgive that person. Becoming willing is realizing that I'm gonna need some to spend some time praying about this over my own heart and about these circumstances and how I'm going to address these things. Becoming willing is also understanding that there are certain coping mechanisms that we have in our lives that we've just grown up with, things that we've used in our lives so that, that we can sustain ourselves and continue to move forward, but they have gotten us stuck. 
And if we're praying in step seven to remove the shortcomings and trying to make amends in step eight, we're going to have to leave some of those coping mechanisms behind. And so this maybe control freak or, or manipulation or perfectionism or stubbornness, all these things we've used in our relationships, we're going to need to leave behind. And how are we going to fill that void? How are we going to walk differently moving forward? And so we need to become willing. We make a list of the people we've harmed and we're willing to make amends. And then we get to this step of action. And, and look back at verse 8. It says, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. So many times in the Old Testament it says 10%. He's saying 50. And then he says, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Leviticus 6 says in the law, if you have cheated someone, you need to pay back what you've cheated them and 20%. He's saying 400%. He is going above and beyond. He's Beginning this process of making amends. Step nine then is this. Make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I love in this passage that Zacchaeus says this, and Jesus doesn't come along and say, mm, Zacchaeus, that's too much. You're being way too generous. Let's back it off a little bit. Or he doesn't say, Zacchaeus, that's great. Just tell me. You just need to confess to me and that'll be good. Or Zacchaeus, from this day forward, everything you did was in the past. From this day forward, let's try not to cheat too many people. No, when Zacchaeus makes this amazing declaration, Jesus says then, today salvation has come to your home. Today you are a true son of Abraham. Today you get to be part of the family and participate in that blessing. That's a big deal. That's a big step. You see, usually... We want to confess our sins to God, not to other people, just to God, and we want to be done with it right there. We just want to confess our sins to God as a way to clear our conscience. But confession was never meant to only be a cure for our conscience. Confession was meant to change our hearts and to change our lives. But too often we use it like Tylenol. We just want to knock the edge off of our pain. We want to feel a little bit better knowing that Tylenol doesn't really get to the root of the issue. It doesn't heal the wound, but it relieves the pain a little bit. But confession is just the first step. It's confession, and then it's repentance, and then it's restitution, and then it's restoration. And confession is never offered in Scripture as a substitute for restitution and restoration. It's just the first part. But the others are so absolutely important. Look at Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come off your offer your sacrifice to God. Now imagine how this would have hit the audience at the time. Wait a second. I, I walked all this way to the temple I waited in this long line to purchase a sacrifice. Now you're telling me I gotta tie up my goat, I gotta go find somebody that's angry at me and have a conversation? That's inconvenient. Yes, it is. But what Jesus is saying by this is our ability to worship God sincerely is dependent upon the status of our relationships with other people. 
our ability to worship God sincerely hinges on our relationships with other people, which means that some of our relational dysfunction in the past will hinder our worship in the present. But we don't usually give that much weight to that relational dysfunction. We don't usually give that much weight to those broken relationships because my relationship with me and God, that's not affected by any of that. But in Matthew 5, it's saying it is. You know, we always fear the consequences of making amends. It's because we don't understand the consequences of concealment. You see, there are consequences to making amends. There are. It's, it's difficult and, and they're tangible and they're immediate and they affect, affect a handful of people in our lives. But we don't understand necessarily the consequences of concealment, which means that, that they're not tangible all the time. And, but they affect most of our relationships and they can last for a lifetime. Confession is just that first step. Then there's repentance and then there's restitution so that there can be restoration. And so we need to be a people who begin that process of making amends. There are going to be people that you need to have a conversation with. There are going to be people that you need to go and apologize to. And, and I would say Make it a sincere apology. Your apology cannot say, well, if you hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have done that. Or you can't say, well, we're all human. We all make mistakes. No big deal. When my wife and I were first married, I used to apologize by saying, I'm sorry you feel that way. Not a great apology. And she told me that. It's true. There are people that we are going to need to go to, that we're gonna to need to have a face-to-face -face conversation with. And if that's impossible, I would say call or, or write a letter. Uh, don't text. Do not post your apology on social media. That would be poor. And we go and we humbly apologize and then we make amends. We make it right. Now Zacchaeus' amends, it was financial. It was relational. And maybe as you look at this, you say, yeah, well, there's emotional wounds and maybe there are some financial wounds and maybe there are some spiritual wounds and, and there's a bunch of different things that I might need to apologize for and bring healing for, but we need to be a people who make it right. Now, there is a caveat to this. The caveat is that sometimes an apology would injure another person. You see, we don't clear our own conscience by hurting someone else. Just a quick example, you would never go to someone and say, you know, listen, I've been talking behind your back for years now, really bad things, and they never had any idea. That would probably injure the relationship more than help the relationship. You need to be careful of that. But on the whole, there are lots and lots of people that we can go to, that we can begin this process. Now, we're a church that loves application. We do not just wanna be hearers of the word, we wanna be doers of the word. It's great that we know these stories and have this knowledge, but there's a lot of people in the New Testament that had a lot of knowledge. As a matter of fact, the people that knew most about the Old Testament and the law were the Pharisees. And Jesus didn't have really great things to say about them because they weren't living it out correctly. And we wanna be a people that live out, that make application from God's word, but as I've been progressing through these steps, I'm overwhelmed, to be honest with you. We're in week three, we're up to step nine, and I just feel like just 
it's just washed over me so much that I don't know what it is that I should be doing at this point. So if there's one handle that I would ask you to take away from today, it's just this. I would say pick one person. Start with one. Pick one person. Make a plan. That's being thoughtful about it. Okay, this is somebody that is a broken relationship. How can I enter into this? Contact the person that's courageous and then make amends. Own your part and what can you do to make it right? Salem Alliance is committed as a church to helping Salem be a city at peace with God. Imagine how the level of peace would rise in this city if we took this seriously. Imagine how the level of peace would rise in our families if we took this seriously. Imagine how it would be a domino effect of we did it and somebody else does it and how that level of peace will rise. That's how we become true sons of Abraham. That's part of what it means to be in the family. We have the opportunity this morning to share as a family in communion where we remember the sacrifice that Christ made to bring us this peace, to bring us this wholeness, to bring us this forgiveness. And maybe this communion time will be a great opportunity for you to practice step seven, where you humbly ask God to remove your shortcomings, where you ask for forgiveness and you participate in this act of communion. But maybe today you can think about a relationship that is broken And I want you to think about what Matthew 5 said. If you have something against someone else or someone else has something against you, to leave your sacrifice at the altar and make it right first. Maybe you don't take communion today. Maybe you pray through that relationship and work on that so that the next time you take communion, it'll be all the sweeter as we begin to practice this. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.